Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, we're back for what is hopefully the last installment of our series on the law, at least as far as a general framework is concerned. And I know that I was challenged by at least one listener saying that I left a cliffhanger last time about how the Christian was going to use the law, and I took two weeks to record this episode. So I apologize. I did get caught up a little bit last week. I intended to record it in just the next week, but uh, things happened and kids got sick. Life happens as such. But today we're going to talk in an exciting way about how Christians can use the Old Testament law. And just by way of review, I did want to make mention of a couple things that I probably didn't emphasize as much throughout the last uh, three episodes in dealing with the Old Testament law on the Christian. The one thing that I don't think I ever really mentioned or made much of is the fact that the law was never a means of salvation. I think Romans 4 is very clear on that issue, that Abraham is saved by faith, not by the works of law or anything like that. And in difference to some theologians, I don't think the law was ever intended to be a means of salvation. Some people would say that the law was intended to be a means of salvation, but no human being could ever complete that means except for Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ would have to fulfill the law, and then that is imputed to our behalf. Now, I do 100% agree that who Jesus is as his righteousness and his forgiveness of our sins, that there is imputation involved in that. But I don't think it is the standard of the Mosaic law, which is imputed to our behalf. I think the Mosaic law had a specific purpose, some of which we've talked about, but that purpose was not salvation. So although some people would uh, talk about the law being the standard for salvation. I don't think that that's exegetically defensible by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I think that it's a means to try to earn a relationship with God in any stretch of the imagination because God had already formed his relationship with Israel prior to the giving of the law itself. And so I think we need to come down on firm footing with that, that the law was never a means of salvation. Further, I don't think uh, this is sometimes a point that's that's skipped by too quickly. One of the things we need to understand in thinking about the law itself is that the law was never meant to be exhaustive. Rather, it was meant to be regulative. Now, the reason I say this is because we, at least in the North American culture and in Western culture, really, we live in a system that is plagued by the judicial workings. And we, if we do not have a law that deals with something, we need a law to deal with that. So we make hundreds, thousands of laws, some of which are actually contradictory on the books. Well, the biblical system is much better than the system we currently utilize for judicial workings. The biblical system wasn't meant to cover every single possibility in how things go, but rather to give a framework through which you can interpret every situation. So for example, just because the law doesn't mention uh, certain animals, uh, it gives you an opportunity. Like for example, it talks about if you steal a neighbor's ox, what 
what's to happen for that if uh, if that situation occurs. Well, does that mean then that if you steal your your neighbor's uh, chicken or if you steal your neighbor's goat or something like that that is not applicable to the law, you can get away scot-free then? Well, of course not. And so the law is meant to be regulative to give a framework by which the wise judge can implement these biblical principles. So that's going to be important in what we talk about today in that the law was never meant to be exhaustive. It's to teach us how to think and to think accurately for those uh, situations that would arise that are not covered by the law. And then thirdly, and finally, before we get into the new material, we need to remember that the law was given for protection and separation as well. The law assumes a, a fallen world. And so there are some laws which are given to Israel that deal with dietary restrictions, uh, marriage, uh, uh, even uh, that deal with, with what happens when somebody kills another person, for example. Well, you hate to assume that something bad is going to occur, like uh, manslaughter, but that is part of living in a fallen world. So laws are given in order to address those kinds of fallen situations for protection, even for separation, like the dietary laws. Uh, many scholars note that one of the reasons dietary laws are given is because food and fellowship are in, integral to association with other people groups. And so if you're not allowed to eat what other people eat, it's really hard for you to associate with them. And that's one of the built-in protective mechanisms for Israel from God's own hand is to keep Israel distinct and separate from some of the other nations. So I think that's an important backdrop in, in what we're thinking about today. And when we address the things that we did last time, specifically the issues of how a Christian can apply the Old Testament law, one of the things I tried to point out was that it's important to recognize the unity of the law. On the one hand, you have the traditional reform view and the theonomic view, which would hold to a tripartite division of law in the moral, civil, and ceremonial. But I think it's inconsistent for the Christian to claim that there's that trifold division when nowhere in scripture is that division delineated, nor is there any kind of recognition of a lesser uh, authority or a lesser morality built on the laws. Now, obviously, I've said this before, but not all laws are equal. So, for example, if you uh, if you break the Sabbath, you deserve death. But if you uh, accidentally kill your neighbor's cow or oxen or something like that, you're to make restitution. But that's not a death sentence. But what I mean is that the law in and of itself is moral in the sense that you there's an expectation that you are to keep it. So it's important to understand that there is a there's a holistic approach to the law. I think when we think of it in that terms, and many scholars have noted this, when we think about the law from a holistic perspective, we have to come away with the conclusion that the Christian is not under the law really in any binding sense whatsoever any binding sense whatsoever. And what I mean by binding is that in the same way Israel was governed, their life was governed day in, day out by the stipulations of the law, that is done away with for the Christian. 
And I think if you reference Hebrews 8, 13 and 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11, you come away with that reality. For example, in Hebrews 8, 13, what you read is this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So if the law is linked with the covenant, which is what we argued strenuously previously, then when the covenant is done away with, so too is the set of life governing laws. And so just like Israel would be governed by all these laws and stipulations, the Christian would not be governed by them because we are under a new covenant. So if that's the case, then does that mean that the law has no usefulness to us? Does that mean that we should never look at the Old Testament or the Pentateuch or, or think about those things? Now, I think that's an important point to consider. And when we're considering that, I would bring us to Romans 5.13, because in Romans 5.13, Paul writes that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Let me read that again. In Romans 5.13, Paul says, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What Paul seems to be saying in that verse is that sin is a part from the law. So in other words, sin is not, uh, it, something is not sin just because the law says it's a sin. It was a sin prior to that. And what I would argue, and this is a foundational uh, point, and, and this is, this would be embraced by pretty much every Christian. It's not a unique point, but I think it bears stating is that when God created the world, he designed creation to live in a certain way, to function in, in a certain regard. And when mankind violates that expectation for the created order, he's sinning. That, that's really what sin is, is going, going against God's intention and violating that. Now, what the law does is it helps us identify that deviation from the created pattern. So in other words, sin, the law is not what makes something sin. Rather, the law is what identifies something as sin. It, it helps us understand that. And so when we think about the, the function of the law, one of the things that we need to double underline exclamation point is that the main or primary function of the law is a teaching tool for the believer. It's a teaching tool. So even though we would have to say from a biblical perspective that the law is no longer binding in the same way that it was binding to everyday Israelites, that doesn't mean there's no more usefulness. In fact, the usefulness not only remains, but it's paramount for us. It's essential for us. And what it does is it teaches us. It helps us to formulate our ethics. It helps us to address questions of sexuality, to address questions of recompense, to address questions of repentance, to address questions of what it means to be right with God. All these things come from the law. It teaches us. It's, it doesn't. So in one sense, what some scholars have proposed, uh, for example, uh, Brian Rossner is one who takes this view. He says that the law under the new covenant ceases to function as law in and of itself, but it transitions to a role of wisdom in living. So that's that's what Rossner would say in arguing that way. Similarly, uh, what Dorsey writes, David Dorsey, who wrote an excellent article in the Jets Journal on 
the Christian, the Mosaic Law and the Christian, that's what it's entitled, uh, came out in the 90s at some point. What he argues is that the law being no longer binding among Christians has a profound binding effect on Christians in a, what he would call, revelatory or pedagogical sense. In other words, it's no longer binding in the sense of a law code is binding, but it's binding in the sense that it teaches us through God's revelation about who God is and the created order itself. And so I think that there's a wise approach to the law in understanding that even though the law has been done away with under the Mosaic Covenant, that doesn't mean that it's no longer useful. It just means that we are able to view the law as a teaching tool to teach us about God and also about the created order as we go through that. So I would submit to you that there's a four-step process to applying the law. And you say, okay, so I'm tracking so far. And how would these four steps operate? Well, the first one is basically buying into the understanding that the primary role of the law is going to be teaching instead of a binding regulatory law code. And and again, we've just briefly touched on this, but it's it's an important understanding that what we're arguing is that the law is no longer telling us you need to you know give such and such the amount to Levites, you need to offer such and such a burnt offering or a Thanksgiving offering. Those those laws no longer apply under this new covenant reality. But what we understand then is that the law has a deeper understanding, something to teach us. So the first step is to acknowledge the didactic role of law. The second step would be to determine the original meaning and significance of the law or the purpose of the law. And how that works uh, involves, and this would be the third step along with that steps two and three are integral to be done together is to trace the theological significance of the law from a biblical perspective. And then once you do that, the fourth step is then you can determine the application and implication of the law itself. So how, how does that work? Well, I think there are a couple good examples we could give of this. Uh, I'll take I'll take uh, Deuteronomy 22.8, for example. I think this is a superb example. And if you read Deuteronomy 22.8, you read this. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. That's a fence around your roof. That you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in other words, what Deuteronomy 22.8 says is that when you have a new house, when you build it, you need to put a fence around your roof because they had the flat roofs. They didn't have the uh, the graded roofs. So people actually used their roof in ancient Israel as a place to hang out. And so you need to put a fence there. Otherwise, if somebody falls off, then you're guilty of basically not taking the necessary safety precautions for that. Now, if we think about Deuteronomy 22.8 and, and how that works, one of the things I pointed out in the last episodes was that in understanding Israel's law code, Deuteronomy 12 through 26 has a specific function within the law in giving specific stipulation of what are the general stipulations 
in Israel's law code. So, for example, the general stipulations are what we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. Well, the specific stipulations in Deuteronomy, specifically referring to Deuteronomy 12 through 26, are the further elaborations. And, of course, the example that I made is the example of the Constitution being the uh, general guidelines for the United States. And then you have case law, which are judicial application of the Constitution, which govern the specifics of everyday life, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. And in a similar sense, that's how the Israelite law code works, where you have these specific stipulations hashing out or fleshing out what these general principles and stipulations are from the Israelite uh, law code, the 10 words. So what we understand from the structure of Deuteronomy is that Deuteronomy 22.8 is actually traceable to the sixth commandment of not murdering, you shall not murder. Well, if we think about what the concept of not murdering is, that is a broader concept like we talked about when we were talking about the Ten Commandments in dealing with preserving life or valuing life, in other words. So it's not just about not murdering, but it's also about valuing life. The reason you build a fence around the roof of your house is in order that you preserve life, that you value life. In other words, you treat the value of your friends, of your family, of your sons, your daughters, your, all your children, you value their life. And so you take special precautions in order to make sure that their lives are taken care of on your watch or on your property, etc. And so that's that's a very uh, applicable uh, working of this general principle of preserving life or valuing life as is stipulated by the Sixth Commandment. Now, one of the things that I've hinted at before, but it's really important in thinking through this, we also want to ask why is it important to value life? Why is it wrong to murder? Is it wrong because the law says it's wrong? Or is it long? Is it wrong to murder because there's something that God has built into creation that would make it so? Or the way he's designed the life, the created order, in order that it would make it wrong? And that's what I would argue is that what we have built into the created, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 to 3 is an essential concept called the image of God. So man is created in God's image. No animals are, nothing else is. God, al- God alone creates man in his image, man and woman. And they are uh, his represent- representatives, his image bearers. And so as such, as we see from Genesis 9, they are not to be killed. They are not to be, their lives are not to be taken uh, in a uh, free manner in any sort of iniquitous way. In fact, in Genesis 9, the, the stipulation is that if man, if somebody takes somebody else's life, their life is also forfeit. Because if you commit such a heinous act, the only equitable punishment that would match the crime would be for your life to be forfeit and to be taken as well, which is a very strong argument for capital punishment. And so that's what the law is teaching us. The law isn't just saying, oh, it's wrong to kill because we want to make it so. The law is showing us what was already built into creation, that human beings have a tremendous value, that our lives are more valuable than animals, that our lives are really, according to the creation narrative, the pinnacle of creation. 
truly humanity is not just like the rest. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. And as such, being made in the image of God, we have a tremendous value. And so that's why you don't murder. That's why you preserve life. And that's why in valuing life in Deuteronomy 22.8, for example, you even take the appropriate application in building a fence around the roof of your house. Now, when we go through those steps, which those four steps, uh, we acknowledge the didactic role of law. So we're trying to move on now to the next three, where we determine the original meaning and significance and purpose of the law. So in doing that, we we understand that in Deuteronomy 22.8, the original purpose of the law is to build a fence around, around around the house, and it's to help Uh, keep somebody from falling off. Now, when we trace the theological significance of the law, we understand that that law is related to the general principle of valuing life, of not murdering. And that law is related to the whole theological concept of being made in the image of God. So each, each specific stipulation should be traceable to a general stipulation. And those general stipulations should be traceable to a creation concept that God has the way that God has designed the world to function, or perhaps it's traceable to an element within God's character himself, which is often displayed in creation as well. So when we've actually gone down that process, now we can actually fulfill the final step and determine the appropriate application or implication of the theology of the law. For example, I think the best uh, in thinking through Deuteronomy 22.8, the best example of fulfilling that today I don't think very many people are going to build a fence around their roof because not many people are going to be hanging out on the roof. But what about putting a fence around your pool? Or what about putting a pool cover on your pool? I mean, you would hate to have friends or family around and have, you know, one of their sons or daughters drown in your pool. Well, taking precautions like that is a element of valuing life and taking care of life. Or what about uh, making sure that your car, I mean, it's the law, it, it, it is law in the United States currently, so this wouldn't be as much of a deal. But what about having seatbelts in your car? I mean, well, that's that's a practical application. Back in the day, uh, maybe when seatbelts weren't required, that would be one of those things where you could take appropriate precautions to value life and uh, make sure that those things are being practiced in the everyday everyday circumstances. And I think that when we work through that principle, it's not rocket science in in the uh, most extravagant uh, kind of thinking, but it makes sense that, okay, I'm looking at the law now and it has such a great reality and teaching capacity for me to teach me the ways of God truly in how I'm supposed to be thinking, how I'm supposed to be acting. And so the law doesn't lose its value. The, the value of the law remains, and it has such an incredible teaching opportunity. Another example might be even uh, Deuteronomy 12. If you look at Deuteronomy 12, what you see are laws about tearing down the Asherah and tearing down the high places in the land of Canaan. And you say, okay, that's Okay, that's all well and good. I'm thinking, you know, I can't think of any, you know, modern pagan high places that exist in my house. So I probably can't find much application for that. Well, again, you go through the process, right? You try to determine the original significance. Okay, take down the high places, take down the worship uh, elements that are involved in 
in the foreign deities, the pagan altars and sacrifices, that is off limits. Now, if you trace Deuteronomy 12 back to the Ten Commandments, the original uh, general stipulations, what we understand is that Deuteronomy 12 is a specific application of the first and second commandments. And the first commandment, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, you know, don't essentially worship anything. Don't don't worship me by using any images or idols or any pictures of me. This is, it's off limits because I am above creation. So the way I always describe the first two commandments is the first commandment says, don't make uh, creation like me. And the second commandment is essentially saying, don't make me like any of creation. So you're supposed to treat God as unique. So when we trace those general stipulations back to creation, we understand from Genesis 1 that God is the sole creator. There are no other deities involved. God creates everything unilaterally from his own hand and from his own power. And so because God is the sole creator and the only one worthy of worship, with regard to his involvement in creation, then that's why the law stipulates that he alone is to be worshipped in the first and second commandment. And then the way that that is to take place is you take out all the other elements of worship. You you do not worship the way that the Canaanites worship. You you remove all of their ways that they worship their deities. Well, if you think about it from where we sit, obviously we don't tend to be tempted to worship God uh, with altars or sacrifices or high places or things like that. But if we read John 4.23, for example, Jesus uh, specifies that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. So in other words, we're not bound to a location. In fact, in Deuteronomy 12, it says that the Lord will choose a location, uh, presumably for the temple it's talking about there, and that that is where Israel is to make sacrifice, etc. But that that specific application changes for us under the new covenant. So God can change how he wants to be worshipped from time to time. So, for example, he doesn't want to be worshipped in a temple right now. And so in John 4.23, Jesus specifies that we are to worship in tr- spirit and truth. In other words, it's not bound to a specific location. It's not bound to a specific sacrifice. But the principles behind that law is still operative in that God still is the sole creator and he still can determine the kind of worship that we are to give him. In other words, well, I'll put it in, in a contemporary uh, example that I've, that I've heard people use, unfortunately, is they'll say things like, oh, this is, this is my way that I worship God, or this is, this is just what I do to worship God. Now, it's possible that that could be meant in an innocent way, but I think we really need to check ourselves because that is never, the biblical prescription is never, you get to worship God in whatever way you want. No, there are things that are off limits to worshiping God, and he actually gives us insight in how to worship him. And in John 4, he says, worship me in spirit and in truth. So in other words, that which coincides with the truth, that's how you worship me, i.e. what's revealed in scripture, and also that which is involved with your entire being, that your emotions, et cetera, the, the inside of you is also involved. It's not just some sort of academic exercise alone is the idea. So it's, I think, really helpful to work through the Old Testament law in this process 
You take a specific commandment and notice we've been starting with specific commandments, but you could actually start uh, on the other side too, which is the origin of the revelation. You could start from the creation narrative and observe and read and, and see what God has done. Like for example, God has made work pre-fall and it is good. And so you could start to stipulate then that that would obviously mean that it's wrong to steal, which would be taking something that you have not worked for, you've not earned. In fact, you're taking something from somebody else who has worked for it and who has earned it. So obviously stealing would be wrong. And then you could make specific applications of stealing. That could be stealing someone's time. That could be stealing someone's money. It could be stealing their possessions, etc. You you understand how it could work either from the creation narrative to the Ten Commandments to specific commandments, or you could relate it backwards, starting with a specific commandment, going to the Ten Commandments, and then tracing that back to the creation narrative. So when you march through all of these details, I think the helpful reality then is that what the law is doing is it's teaching us how to think. And and that's awesome. That's why I love the law is because it's such a such a practical means by which God can teach us how to live in certain situations. And it's not meant to be exhaustive. Remember that. And so you will have to fit your situation into the principles that are revealed through the law. And this is why Rossner calls biblical law a element of wisdom. It's it's really wisdom literature for the Christian in in that sense. And I I do agree with the with the main point of that is that now that we read the law, it we're not bound by what the law stipulates. In fact, I don't own any oxen, but I do own a car. And what happens if I if I hurt somebody with my car? Well, what am I to do? Am I just to say, well, sorry, I don't own an oxen. And if my oxen had hurt you, I would have had to make restitution. But since my car hurt you, that's fine. I don't actually have to do anything. Well, is that really the spirit of the law? Of course not. And so when we understand the law from a biblical perspective, it actually has uh, a lot of power when we understand its teaching capability. So in full disclosure, dispensationalists get a lot of pushback and not, obviously this view of the law isn't inherent to dispensationalism, but a lot of times dispensationalists will hold this version of law because we understand Israel and the church are distinct. And so the laws given to Israel don't govern the laws of the church. So it's easier for a dispensationalist to make this approach to the law. However, there are a lot of scholars now who are, who would not be dispensational who still agree with this point is that we can't hold the, the law in parts. We can't say there's moral, civil, ceremonial. What we need to do instead is think principally. And so that's why this version of the law, or I guess viewing the law, would be called principalism is that we we look at the law, we define it into principles, and we work our way through that, and then we can adequately apply it to our own lives. And I think that that's really helpful in living the Christian life because God hasn't changed, the created order hasn't changed, and so the law, even though the culture has changed, the law itself in helping us think through how to fit God's plan into our everyday lives, that remains very, very prevalent. And that's a highly, highly helpful aspect of the law. So I hope that was helpful to you. I know that uh, there could be a lot of questions or follow-ups from that. So I always look forward to the feedback that I get from everyone who listens. You can reach out to me as always at peter at petergaming.com. 
Or if you want to find out more about me, you can always visit the website, petergaming.com. Or if you are looking for a seminary, shepherds.edu is the school where I teach. And always happy to hear from you or to help you out in any way. It's been a good episode. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.